Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB, aka Danielle Bezalel. Let's get into it. In this episode, we talk all about the intersections of sex and mental health. And trust us, there are quite a few if you didn't know. Our first guest is the wonderful Mia Davis, founder and CEO of Taboo, a revitalized approach to sexual and mental health care. Mia is constantly thinking of new ways to democratize comprehensive sex, relationship, and mental health education for the masses, and make it easier for all of us to advocate for ourselves in the bedroom and beyond. We also have on the very funny and authentic Olive Persimmon. Olive has been developing a fan base on the internet with her observational and quirky humor everywhere, from Elite Daily to She Knows Media to Reddit, and you can now check out her latest book, The Coitus Chronicles, all about her five-year journey without penetrative sex. Without further ado, here I am with Mia. So Mia, hello. Hi. Okay, uh, we're going to get started. Um, can you say your name, your title, and your background? Yes, so my name is Mia Davis, and I'm the founder and CEO of Taboo, T-A-B-U, with an accent. Um, and my background is in product design. I was previously a UX designer at Salesforce. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit more about your company, Taboo, and what led to you creating it? Yeah, totally. So Taboo is really, we build communities and tools around helping people navigate sexual and mental health. And that was really born out of my own sort of background, just with having um, really terrible sex ed growing up. Uh, grew up in a religious, like conservative family. I went to a Lutheran school for 11 years. So obviously like, yeah. So like abstinence based education really seeped in there. Totally. And I was very, I just was, had a lot of shame around like even having any type of sexual desires or interests, like a normal human being and a normal teenager. Um, and so then I also actually also had a lot of issues with my period growing up and still. And so, Dealing with that and like not really having resources or people to talk to led me to having like a lot of shame around it. And then in college, I experienced sexual assault. And so after that, I also had like no idea. I didn't even really feel comfortable labeling it that way at the time. Even now, like it's definitely still a challenge. And then I had another experience, unfortunately, after college. And so just kind of like navigating that and reclaiming my own sexuality and just like body image, self-esteem, all of the issues that came with that. Um, I also have like a pelvic floor condition that's called like vaginismus, which makes it really difficult for anything to like penetrate. So even tampons I never was able to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made that like complicated relationships. And so it's just been a journey for me to kind of figure out, just learn about my body and just learn about like normalizing these things. And basically for me, it's always been a passion of like trying to prevent any other young person from going through the same things that I went through and just making it like maybe a healing journey for myself, but also just really trying to rethink the way that we learn about sex and bodies and all that stuff, communication. Totally. And isn't it interesting how like we and people like create things in order to make sure that other people don't have to like experience the same thing. Like, I think that's really noble and like really awesome to like be able to be like, 
this is what happened to me and like I don't want it to happen to anyone else. Rather, I want someone else to have the opposite experience. Exactly. Well, I also feel like, um, so I was in the Bay Area, so like from school and then after graduation and obviously there's so many startups and just like everybody's doing a startup and I always knew, I was always kind of like entrepreneurial, but I was very committed to never pursuing something unless I was super passionate about it Mm -hmm. because it just really frustrated me when people would, you know, like I feel like there's really talented and smart people out there doing things that are just kind of like useless or even problematic. So I definitely am super passionate about it and feel like you can, I think that passion for a lot of people comes from personal experience. Totally. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection of sex and mental health taboo addresses? Because as we kind of spoke about previously, you know, you know, off of this interview, we've kind of chatted about how mental health and sex kind of impact each other. And you can't really have, you can't really have a conversation about sex without talking about mental health. So can you talk about what you do at Taboo to kind of discuss those intersections? Yeah, totally. I think that when I first started working on the company, I didn't even realize that what we were addressing was the underlying issue of like mental health because so much of it is about addressing the shame that goes around with it, addressing like the emotional and psychological impact of whether it's identity that could be sexual identity, gender identity, racial identity, like all of these aspects of who you are and all these aspects of like how you feel about yourself are kind of tied to your, I mean, they're mental, right? They're like the things you think about yourself and other people and other people's perceptions of you. So Basically, even from the start, we always wanted to connect people with originally just like sex therapists and kind of like giving you answers to questions that you have, giving you the opportunity to ask questions and communicate and learn better communication tools. And then we kind of expanded to also we always thought it was really important to have like medically accurate information. So then kind of expanding to more of a like gynecologist or like urologist, um, like anyone kind of working pelvic floor, pelvic mm-hmm. floor, like physical therapist. Oh yeah. That's um, a thing. That's a thing. Like all of those different aspects of like your overall health. Um, more holistic. Right. More holistic approach because I didn't even know what a pelvic floor physical therapist was. I didn't even know what a sex therapist was or that it, that was like a thing. And I think there's a lot of misrepresentations of what it means to be a sex therapist Um, when it's really just like a clinical licensed therapist that has like a special training to talk about sex or sexuality. According to the Mayo Clinic, sex therapy is usually provided by licensed psychologists, social workers, physicians, or licensed therapists who have advanced training in issues related to sexual and relationship health. Through sex therapy, you can address concerns about sexual function, sexual feelings, and intimacy, either in individual therapy or couples or family therapy. Sex therapy can be effective for individuals of any age, gender, or sexual orientation. Sex therapy is also typically short-term in duration with a limited number of sessions. However, treatment plans depend on the concerns and goals being addressed. So anyway, so that was really important to me to help connect people with these experts. And so what we're doing now is, um, Again, focusing on community, but then also we are launching these courses. So we've partnered with different instructors and different experts who can 
talk about these different topics. So whether it's painful sex or uh, mismatched desire in a relationship, painful periods, um, and then we're obviously going to continue building from there and like see what the different topics are that people struggle with. Um, just giving people actionable information and then also the community component so that they don't feel alone in their experience. Cause that's generally a really big part of, um, some of like the struggles people have, whether it's with depression or other things, when you just feel like you're the only person going through this. And so totally. I think it's kind of like, we want to have community education and like the experts coming in. For sure. And in terms of the courses, so is it like people are going to be on their own path, kind of like watching these videos or like reading articles or what, like walk me through if I were to kind of like join, yeah. what would the courses look like? Totally. So we have some ideas for like the future versions of this and like different iterations of it. But for now, we wanted to keep it really accessible and give people the opportunity to kind of take the course on their own time. So now you would just go on the website, buy the course, and then you get access to the course. We created workbooks that go along with each oh, course. Cool. Yeah, because we wanted people, we were also talking to a lot of people about like the experience of going through therapy. And a lot of people were saying it's really great to have that one hour conversation every week or if you go multiple times. But um, they also wanted things to do kind of in between the time and kind of keep them like, what what can I do on a daily basis to remind myself of things to do? So that's why we wanted to come up with like homework assignments and mm -hmm. things that you can try to build into your life, um, more like habits and behavior forming. And then we, and then you also get access to the community that correlates with that course. So then you can talk to other people who are kind of going through the same thing as you. Um, and we have the instructor kind of pop in every once in a while and like, you know, kind of like an AMA, whatever. Mm -hmm. We haven't fully launched it yet. So that's what it will look like. Um, and then all of the instructors have had, like, they offer, like, a discount code, for example, if you want to have a personal coaching session with them. For sure. Um, and then we also partnered with other companies so that we can offer their products at a discount. So if it's, like, related to the topic, mm -hmm. you can we can point our community in their direction. Gotcha. Um, let's, like, transition to therapy, like, mm -hmm. for a quick second. Because I am someone who's, like, a huge proponent of therapy, like, my parents got divorced when I was like five. That was a time that like my family like did family therapy and individual therapy. When I was like 13, I was acting like a 13 year old girl at the time and just like really being a brat and like really rude towards my mom for no reason other than me being a 13 year old girl. And I went back in therapy and then I did it in college and have been in and out of it this year in grad school. And I think that it's really interesting to me because therapy so many people have this like awful stigma or like there's this awful stigma against therapy. And I don't think that necessarily could fix everything, mm -hmm. but I do think that there's a massive benefit that some people can gain from therapy. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what do you think, like, wh what do you think we can do to like mm -hmm. make it more normalized for young people? Cause I'm sure like in your courses, you know, there are all these different pieces of it. There's the education, there's the community, but at the end of the day, like there's like theory and mm -hmm. clinical people who mm -hmm. like have these ideas to help how people can get better. Um, so what, like, give me your thoughts. What do yeah, you think? No, totally. I agree. So I think, um, so what we're doing specifically, and then I'll address just like the larger issue. Um, we kind of see ourselves as being a part of your journey wherever you are. So we're also last year we piloted like a therapy matching service and we're going to bring that back. But what we wanted to do was make it so that 
if you're not necessarily ready for therapy, you can like read an article, take a course, like join our community. And then we want to still be able to help you find that care. If Mm -hmm. you do choose that, like that is right for you or you're at the place in your life or that's something you want to do. So, cause I do think that I was just reading, there was like a survey of millennials, I want to say just kind of like broadly. Um, and half of them were willing to seek therapy, but then like less than half knew how to go about that process, knew like Mm. where they would go. And then also a lot of them were, um, sort of like against it because of the cost. And we also surveyed our community and cost is such a huge factor. And the reason that a lot of people don't go to therapy and not necessarily wanting to go through the process of like finding someone through their insurance. Um, and so that's, a large reason why we wanted to focus on something that was like more affordable, hopefully for a lot of people. But I definitely think that, um, it's so important to normalize and it's really, even in like certain communities, like a lot of, um, more like immigrant communities or like, I know the black community, like in a lot of communities, it's even more stigmatized. Totally. And there are some great organizations that like address that. And I think it's awesome when it can be specific to a community because that helps you feel like, okay, this is like for me as opposed to something I can just use, but it's not built for me and who I am. Um, but I think, I think it's just finding what works for you, but I definitely feel like it can't, well, unfortunately it could hurt if you had a bad experience, I guess, but like it really can't hurt, you know, if you just try, like Mm -hmm. just, um, go once or twice, um, probably twice just to like, yeah, the once first, might not the really, first yeah, time exactly. Like, okay, who are you? And they're like, well, when I was six, right. It's like maybe go a few times and then, you know, and there's also different types of therapy. Um, and some are meant to be more like, I think CBT is meant to be more like time box. It's not necessarily that you're supposed to go for 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, go for 10 sessions get the tools, learn the tools of how to cope with whatever it is that you're dealing with, like rethink the things that you're going through. And, you know, then you can see how you're doing and you don't have to go all the time. So it doesn't have to be like a lifelong investment, though if that is for you, that's awesome. Um, But I would just say like kind of see, like do what is realistic for you. Right. Um, But in the meantime, I would also recommend gratitude journaling. I think that that's something that's really easy to do. There's like journal actual journals or there's also apps um or you could just do it yourself with mm-hmm. like paper um and i think that's something for people who maybe like can't afford any type of experience with a person right. but one other thing to mention sorry. yes no um i went to like this mental health professional networking networking dinner the other night and um one of the topics that came up was like unloading your trauma and like your experiences on other people Mm. and how and there was kind of a debate where it was like that's so important because you want to be vulnerable and it's great to share but you also need to be aware of like what you could be triggering for someone else exactly also like like the secondhand trauma totally and just like burdening someone with constantly like complaining or constantly like putting all of your everything on them. So, you know, I do think that going to someone who's professionally trained to talk through things. Exactly. And unbiased and like, exactly. You can be totally honest. They don't have anything in it for them to, even when you're giving or getting advice, like you can get, 
with a parent, like you can get frustrated because they might be like, well, I think you should do this when they're looking out for you, but right. because they have like a stake in your happiness, of exactly. course, but then you're just irritated because you just want to hear like what you want to hear yeah, sometimes. Yeah, exactly. You're like, just, just validate me. me. <laughs> I know I've talked to like my parents, but like, are you even listening? Yeah, like, why exactly. can't you just say that I'm right? And they're just like, okay, like I can do that, but like, that's not really But helpful. that's not exactly. Yeah. So I definitely think it's beneficial to go to someone who can actually like, you know, you can just talk to and. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see. We kind of already addressed like the intersection of sex and mental health and how taboo approaches the concept of therapy. How do you personally think that mental health issues impact people's sex lives? So it can be in a variety of different ways. So one could be how your mental health actually affects your sex life in the sense of like, say that you have a mental health condition such as depression that can often lead to a lower, um, like, I don't want to call it sex drive. Cause I've heard it's like not a drive, right. um, more of like sexual desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and so definitely if you're going through something, whether it's situational or chronic, that can totally impact your body. Mm -hmm. And even for example, like people who are experiencing PTSD from sexual trauma or other types of trauma, like that can really come up for you during sex. And that can come up for you during a relationship and trying to navigate how to talk about that and how to know, like notice and respect what your body is doing in response to what you're going through. All of that is so like, tied together, which Mm -hmm. is another reason to go to therapy and to like access more professional resources. Right. And not, not to be ashamed about that because like that is normal. It's like a normal natural response to experiencing something traumatic or to experiencing anxiety, experiencing depression, um, other like mental illnesses. And then I would say on the other side of things, like Having sex can also impact your mental health exactly. in, like, so many ways, whether it's that you're, like, in a situationship or, like, you don't know if you're actually together or you're not together, and then you're, like, giving yourself anxiety totally. just, like, trying to navigate that. Yeah. Or the shame if you, like, have a religious background and then you feel like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this way, I shouldn't be doing this. People are so afraid to, like, watch porn, Mm -hmm. to masturbate. Like, there's a lot of shame going on in that. And so, like, practicing your sexual or, like, yeah, desires can often cause anxiety or other issues. So it's, like, kind of a circle, cycle. Yeah. Yeah, they all keep playing with each other. Totally. And like what you said, I've also experienced, like, definitely points in my life where I've had painful sex for Mm -hmm. one reason or another. And it totally impacts, you know, the person that I'm with of just like, well, they're upset because they think it's their fault. And I'm upset because I think it's my fault and it's not pleasurable. And it's just like horrible. Totally. And I think the default norm that people think is just like, oh, well, everyone who's having sex is having a great time and it's wonderful. And that's not really the case. Not at all. And especially because it takes so much like time and practice. Like, you know, there are definitely people who have sex with other people for the first time and it's great, but I wouldn't say that that's the typical thing. Like you have to learn other people's bodies and learn your own body. Like that's first and foremost. Mm -hmm. But I guess point being is that 
I completely agree. And <laughs> long story short. Well, um, I also um, learned a lot about like even erectile dysfunction mm-hmm. that, you know, medication is not necessarily really the best solution. Actually going to therapy can be really beneficial because a lot of it is performance anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so like that, the pressure of that, and that can happen, you know, not just like for erectile dysfunction, but any type of dysfunction or pain, like a lot of it is psychological. And so getting around that is possibly a better place to start Mm -hmm. than just like relying on medication to fix the problem. Right. And for people, some people who are on depression medication, Mm -hmm. it could decrease their, their desire, like you were saying, to have sex. And that just totally like, you know, it's kind of just like a double-edged sword in that sense because it's like, oh, well, I want to be, like, not depressed, right. but I also want to have pleasurable sex. Um, and other medications, like, a lot of doctors don't talk about that, like mm-hmm. the side effects of even birth control can really have an mm. impact on your hormones or totally um, people who are, like, have gone through cancer or who are, like, either have gone through treatment or going through treatment. Like, so many different things can impact your hormones and your sexual desire and like then the sort of like self-esteem issues that come from that Mm -hmm. can really be tough for people to navigate so I feel like it just it's all tied up in a really complicated bow totally (laughs) yeah but the cool thing is is that like I do think norms are changing a little Mm -hmm. bit about therapy and about kind of opening up and talking. And I think the sooner that those norms in terms of like communicating what's going on with you are kind of like normalized, um, you know, the sooner that happens, the more people will be able to like find what works for them. Yeah, I certainly hope so. I sometimes worry that like I'm living in a bubble, not only being on first I was on the West Coast. Well, I'm from the Midwest, but then I was on the West Coast. Now I'm on the East Coast in New York specifically. So it's pretty liberal. Right. And I think like everyone in New York goes to therapy or like knows someone who goes to therapy. <laughs> right. So I do wonder like in smaller towns or in like less, I don't know, even privileged areas, like if right. people are feeling that it's as normalized as like now we're like, oh, mental health, mental health. Like it's, you know, such a buzzword and a topic, but, um, I think reaching those communities is super important. Totally. Yeah. And whether that be through like inclusive media, Mm -hmm. you know, like movies and TV shows that everybody is watching or like online portals and articles, um, which leads us to our next question perfectly, which (laughs) is who are your favorite organizations and companies who are doing great things to help folks overcome mental health obstacles to enjoy their sex lives more? So one that I really like is called Therapy for Black Girls, and they have a podcast, I believe, and then also online you can find different therapists. Um, And then honestly, I have tried to look up like a ton of organizations in this space. Because you're doing it with Taboo. I I found a ton of, uh, I actually read an article about this recently. Maybe it was the New York Times. I don't remember. But about just like Instagram, quote unquote, therapists. So like a lot of therapists are turning to Instagram to like, and they have these huge followings now. So they were giving like, not necessarily advice that's tailored, but more just like motivational or um, 
kind of. There's like you're one, stronger than you believe. Yeah. And then also, like, there's this woman, I believe her name is pronounced Sylvie Kokosian, and she um, she has a podcast, but also on her page, she'll, like, break down different things such as, like, attachment styles and, like, all these different terms that you know, I'm learning about and, like, other people probably don't know about. Um and so I really appreciate those accounts just because they're very educational. Right. Um, they don't really give advice because I don't think they're allowed to. Right. <laughs> but they kind of just give you the tools that you can use. And then hopefully that's also normalizing therapy because I don't want people to think that that's like a substitute. But at least if you can follow someone and kind of see like you can learn more about their philosophy and like how they approach. Right. It can get your foot in the door. Yeah. It can make it a little less scary maybe as long as people know the difference between, you know, right. This um, is actually right. Not like, Oh, I read this thing. And like now I know everything. Right. Um, but also, I mean, obviously there's apps like headspace and I think that's great for people, um, who want to like meditate, um, calm, I think is kind of similar. I just think personally, I'm really into um, ASMR. I don't know if you are familiar. What <laughs> is that? The sound of sound thing? Yeah, it's a sound Wait, thing. Wait, you like it? I I need it. What is it? Like you like when people eat pickles in microphones? No, oh, okay. I really only like one person, and I really only like when she whispers. Oh my I, god! Please I don't like, tell me more. I don't know. Well, her Anything. account is called Gentle Whispering ASMR, I think. Um, her name's Maria. Her fans are, like, obsessed with her. But um, she just had a baby, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. No, but she just, like, I don't know. I think I I, just, I didn't know what it was until I was watching. Um, have you seen that show about the guy in Brooklyn who, like, deals? High maintenance? Yes. I love that yes. show. So I feel like she was either she was on an episode or someone who does ASMR was on an episode. Okay. I randomly watched it. I think when it was still just the web series. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. I it was so random. And the second that I heard it, I was like, oh. "You loved it." Well, I just knew because back in like middle school, certain teachers would like talk a certain way and it would like be really like sensational, very calming. Not only calming, but like you kind of just like it's like tingly, oh, like you just like get a this, physical feeling? yeah sensation. Like, oh my god, tr- truly! And I never knew what that was. I just was always it was cool when it happened. And so when I when they, I was just like that is that like that's what that is. Wow. And so if I'm feeling anxious or I can't sleep, I will often listen to that. Oh my god, we have yeah. to link this person. Yes, in the absolutely link her. I I mean, some people hate it. Like some right. people have a visceral like opposite reaction. Right. So it's so if that's really, you, just turn it off. <laughs> that's you, yeah, just turn that right off. To the person, but yeah, I think stuff like that is cool. So while I was super skeptical about Mia's love for ASMR, there have actually been a couple of scientific studies done about it that are worth mentioning. According to a journal article entitled More Than a Feeling, we learned that Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, or ASMR, describes the experience of tingling sensations in the crown of the head in response to a range of audiovisual triggers, such as whispering, tapping, and hand movements. It's important to note that the psychological basis of ASMR has not been established. However, in 2018, scientists presented two studies, one large-scale online experiment and one lab study, 
that test the emotional and physiological correlates of the ASMR response. Both studies showed that watching ASMR videos increased pleasant effect only in people who experienced ASMR. Study two showed that ASMR was associated with reduced heart rate and increased skin conductance levels. Don't know what that is, but sounds cool. Findings indicate that ASMR is a reliable and physiologically rooted experience that may have therapeutic benefits for mental and physical health. I think like the key here is that like, if you are experiencing like mental health issues that are impacting your sex life or that your sex life is impacting your mental health issues either way around, like the key things I think that we want like people to know is that like it may be common, but it's not necessarily normal. normal. Mm-hmm. And like to make sure to, you know, whatever that be, all the things that we talked about, like whether that be meditating or journaling or seeing a therapist or seeing a physical therapist for your pelvic floor or, you know, going on medication, you know, there are so many different options. And I think the most important thing is that we're talking about it and we're trying to shed light on it. Yeah, totally. I think, I think also just talking to your friends, like being more open, if you have gone to a therapist or if you have something like that works for you, obviously it's gonna be different for everybody. Some people exercise can be really great. Just going for a walk, like taking a nap, you know, whatever, watching TV, zoning out. Um, but just normalizing it with your friends and like being honest, if you're having, if you're going through something, um, I think that's another big thing because I know for me, like it's, if I'm ever going through like, like maybe a bout of depression or something, Mm -hmm. it's easy to cancel plans or be like, Oh, you know, like I don't really want to do that. And then you, it feels like you're being a bad friend. Mm. And so I feel like if people could just be more honest about, and I know that's hard, obviously. It takes practice. Exactly. It takes practice. But I think that that helps. And that helps the friend maybe normalize it too, because who knows if they've had a similar feeling or experience. Right. You never know until you talk about it. Right. For sure. Our graphic illustrator is Alana from Imperium Illustrations. Alana specializes in custom, illustrative cover art for books, music albums, and podcasts. She captures your story's soul and amplifies your voice in meaningful design. You can check out her latest projects at imperiumillustrations.com.au. Have you ever felt anxiety about having sex or experienced pain during intercourse? Emotions are deeply intertwined with sexual activity and anxiety, depression, and fear of intimacy can all contribute to painful sex. The good news is, now there is Millie, the gentlest vaginal dilator on the market. With a design that puts you in control, Millie can help reduce sex anxiety by breaking the negative cycle of muscle contraction that causes pain. Learn more at www.milliemedical.com. Any hooser? Are you ready to get going? <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. I'm sweet. So ready. Um, thank you so much for being on the podcast. We're really excited to have you on this episode of Sex and Mental Health. Um, we would love to get started by hearing your name, a little bit about your background, and kind of delve into your story and how you became passionate about writing. 
Yeah, okay. My, my name is Olive Persimmon. Is uh, that your real name also? Yeah, I can't tell you that. All right. It, it maybe, maybe like not. Real name. Hey, you never know. You never know. Use your best guess. All right. I like it regardless. Yeah. Um, no, it's not my real name. But my, my name on the book is Olive Persimmon, and I am an author, a speaker, and a communication coach. And what was the last question? Uh, how you became passionate about writing. Yeah, you know, I never wanted to be a writer. In fact, I wanted to be a politician. So I have a degree in international politics. I studied political science. I ruined a lot of parties when I was 18 through 20. <laughs> Still ruining parties, um, you know, getting in fights about things. And I kind of, I always wrote as like a little bit of a hobby. I was passionate about public speaking and words but I never thought I'd ever write a book. I never thought I wanted to write a book. And then uh, I choked on a hot dog on a date. You choked yeah. on a hot dog yeah. on a date. It's a true story. I was on a date in Cleveland when I lived in Cleveland, Ohio. I went to a fancy hot dog joint and I choked on a hot dog. Wow. <laughs> and I had to Heimlich myself on the bar. Holy shit. <laughs> That's, this is, I have a terrible fear of choking to this day. What was your date doing at this so, time? At this exact moment, one of his friends had come in and he was like waving to his friend. It happened very quickly. Oh, God. And so I turned to him and by the time he realizes that I'm not breathing, I like kind of do the choking sign and he's like, oh my, oh my God, are you choking? <laughs> And by then I hadn't taken a breath in like a, a long freaking time. Holy shit. So I hide like myself on the bar and all this beer and hot dog comes out and everybody's like watching and it's very embarrassing. Anyway, I go in the next day to work and my colleague's like, this is a true story. My colleague's like, how was the date? And I was like, well, I became asphyxiated on a hot dog and had to hide like myself. <laughs> and she just goes, you got to start writing this shit down. And I was like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't. She was like, you're really funny. And I never thought I was funny. Like, that, would, that wouldn't have been in my top 15 adjectives to describe myself. And I was like, other people think I'm funny? Uh-huh. And then I started writing the chapter about how I was on a date, and I choked on a hot dog, and the rest is history. Wow, <laughs> wow, wow. So it was all thanks to that hot dog. I, I guess, you know? <laughs> or all thanks to you writing it down, I would yeah, say. I think I, think I just needed, at, at that, at, it was my first job out of college. It was the first time anyone had ever really validated that they thought I was really funny. And it started happening again and again. I was like, maybe I'm, maybe I should be a comedian. Oh wow! And so I was were you like, thinking about stand-up comedy. I did it for a minute, and then I realized I'm not that funny. Sure. I'm just funny enough to write like kind of funny books. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, it's a different skill being able to be funny in a book compared to on a stage. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. That's really cool. Okay. Um, can you tell us about your books, uh, Unintentionally Celibate and the Coit the Coitus Chronicles? Yeah. My first book, so the hot dog book, Unintentionally Celibate, <laughs> um, it's basically a compilation of stories, humorous stories, and it starts out, um, I think the first section is called, How Does Someone Become an Unintentional Celibate? And it's like, how I was like mascotting, and all the, how I was like a weird kid. And then it goes into a little bit of dating, and how I'm Kind of, can can we curse? Yeah. Okay, and how I'm kind of just like fucking up my dating life. And it ends with me just being, entering this dry, this dry spell that I didn't know was going to last five freaking years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I'd known, I would have done things a little differently. Right. Um, so that's kind of how it ends. And I desperately needed a rebrand after that book came out. <laughs> 
Because people would start sending me articles about like granny panties. Right. They'd be like, hey, I thought of you. Or like. <laughs> it'd Not be like, exactly what you want to yeah. be thought of. Or it'd be like, you know, like desperately need help making over your love life, apply for this reality show. Oh, wow. So sending me stuff like that. Sure. And I was like, I need a rebrand. Mm-hmm. So I decided to start running the Coitus Chronicles, which was kind of about breaking the dry spell. Got it. I was like, I got to do something differently. Yeah. So what's the, what's the premise of the Coitus Chronicles? Yeah. So the Coitus Chronicles, basically, I'm in the middle of this, this five-year celibacy. I hadn't had... At that point in time, defining celibacy by penetrative sex, which I find out somewhere in the middle of the book is like a very limited definition of right. sex. Totally. Um, but at that point in time, that's how I was defining it. And I just was in such a rut and I didn't know how to get out of it. So I decided to kind of go on this uh, adventure, if you will, where I was just going to start exploring sex and dating and I was going to write about it. And that was going to be the Coitus Chronicles. And there was no agenda and there was no like, at the end of this, I will be a sex goddess. Right. I was just like, I got to do something mm-hmm. or I'm going to die alone <laughs> <laughs> with like a cobwebby sort of vagina. Sure, sure. And I didn't want that to happen. No, no one does. No. Um, <laughs> okay. All right. Have you um, ever been celibate? No. no, that's great. There are definitely ha- definitely definitely not. You mean unintentionally? Yeah, unintentionally. I'm sure in between. Currently, I'm in a monogamous relationship, mm-hmm. but in college, there definitely were times that was a, like a couple of months, probably up, probably up to like six months without me having sex, penetrative sex. But other than that, not really. That's great. Yeah, you so you enjoyed it. <laughs> My celibacy? Yeah. No. Oh. No, I said you that's it's great, great that, that no, I that's great that you that. have. Yeah. Got it, got it, got it. I didn't mind it. I didn't, I didn't mind it for a long time. You know, it's kind of just like you go to work, you go to the gym, you come home, and then suddenly June has become January. <laughs> sure. But how does June become, June like 2011 become June 2016 is the real question, You go right? to work, you come home, you, <laughs> you go, go to, to the, the gym, gym. You go to the... Five years later. I think I was dating people in the beginning, and I didn't really realize it was a problem until I was dating a gentleman, and he broke up with me after six weeks, and we hadn't had penetrative sex. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, now it's become a thing. Right. Now I'm like, okay, why am I not doing this? But then a few more years passed. Right. And... I think I was just, um, for a very long time, I was just like, oh, I'm fine. I was totally in denial that right. it was even a problem. Well, were you having solo sex? Yeah. Yeah. So I think... And the- even other other forms of sex. There right. Or, there were oral pleasantries that were mm-hmm. exchanged. Right. Um, Pleasantries. Yeah. <laughs> Good day to you, sir. <laughs> I always say that. I always define it as oil pleasantries. I, I think it's funny. I don't know where I got that, okay. but... Um, Maybe Downton Abbey or something. <laughs> <laughs> something like Maybe. that. Maybe. Um, all right. And do you... Okay, so I'm wondering, are you kind of someone who doesn't or didn't at this time want to have penetrative sex unless it was with someone serious or was it maybe like... Diff- what was going on there? Yeah, that was one of the main things I was adamantly against casual sex. Okay. I just couldn't... uh, My father is very paranoid. And so I was like, they're going to kill me. (laughs) Like, if I go... Like, there's some... I love that this is about mental health, too. Because there's some some other stuff going on here, too. We're going to delve deep, for sure. Um, 
but I, I have a thing about safety and I never really felt safe. Um, and I didn't want to go home with someone I didn't know. I didn't think my body was going to respond. Mm -hmm. I had a deep fear of being used. And so for a very long time, casual sex was not even an option. And then it got to the point where I hadn't had sex in so long. The idea of breaking the dry spell felt like this big thing. It got built up. Yeah. And then I definitely didn't want to do it with someone I like just met at the bar. Right. And I'm constantly going to be worrying about, one, is he going to kill me? Right. <laughs> sure. And two, you know, I don't know his sexual history. Right. So it was just off the table for a really long time. And I wasn't, you know, the, you go back to, you go to work, you go to the gym, you go home, you're right. not meeting people. Right. And what about the apps? I don't, I don't like online dating. I don't like it at all. I don't do well on online dating. <laughs> I don't think I did either when I was using it. And I don't know how people, I have a friend who is engaged with her first hinge date. Really? <clears throat> yes. Yeah, I have plenty of friends who have been successful on it. I've been on and off it with varying degrees of success. Right. Um, I don't do as well, I think, because what you take away on online dating is, like, somebody's essence. Mm -hmm. So, like, all the things that make them really nice, like right. that they're funny or kind or um, energetic or they vibrate a certain way. Yeah. And it really boils down to, like, did you write two pithy sentences and your photos. And I'm like, okay looking. Like, I'm not bad looking. Oh, no, you're a good looking person. Thank you. But I, not like comparatively on the internet. Sure, so I sure. Like, I'm probably in the middle range of people on the internet. Right. So I like do fine. I yeah, do fine, but right. it's not like people. It's just not a connection that is worth connecting over. Yeah, I just don't, I don't like, I've also done the thing where it's like, okay, we're chatting online for like two weeks and then we meet in person and you're like, yeah. oh, Actually, you look nothing like your photo, and you, you, you <laughs> you're pretty fucking boring. You smell like soup. Oh, no. You <laughs> smell like soup. Sometimes. Or sometimes I roll in, and I smell like soup. You know, sure. you had an off day. You sometimes spilled something you on you. Sometimes you smell like soup. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes you just soup day, I guess. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, okay, okay. I'm starting to get it a little bit more. And this is reminding me, have you seen The 40-Year-Old Virgin? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with, yes. With so he has this, yes. I've seen it like a million times. I'm a huge like Judd Apatow freak. But basically, he is asked like, how, how are you 40 years old and you haven't had sex yet? And he's like, you know, for a long time I was going to do it. And then it became this thing that yeah. I was just building up. And then yeah. eventually I had freaked out so much that I hadn't done it that I felt like something was wrong with me and like all of these things that kind of like you're expressing of like yeah. and so do you think ding 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 <laughs> so do you think that this comes from mental health kind of anxiety or fear kind of like you were what you were saying with your dad being paranoid and you not wanting to be used like what I'm wondering like what of these fears and insecurities about sex and sexuality come from like mental health being the backdrop. Yeah, I think a lot of things about sex boil down to self-esteem, mm. which is a reflection of your mental health in a lot of ways. Right. Right? So when you're having really good, wonderful sex, usually it's because um, your body is relaxed, your brain is relaxed, you're connecting with that person, you're able to be vulnerable and communicate your needs and wants and vice versa, and, and you feel safe. Mm -hmm. And I was somebody who just didn't feel safe a lot, couldn't quiet that inner dialogue in my brain all the time mm -hmm. that was being critical of, of myself. Um, and I think I had really 
conflated this idea that to be a great lover, you had to have a lot of experience. And so I was like, well, I haven't had a lot of experience. Therefore, I'm probably not going to be a great lover. Right. And then I'd be like obsessively overthinking this, mm-hmm. coupled with the paranoia about being safe, coupled with I had a, this is very mental health related, I had a deep fear of uh, contracting an STI. Mm. So like very, very, um, some trauma around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you just, by the time you get home with someone, you're such a ball of like anxious energy. You can't even, your body's not responding and you're not responding. And so you, you like titty fuck them and leave because you're just like, right. <laughs> that's, that's you know, thing. you're just like, okay. <laughs> you're like, all right, this is as good as it's going to get, I guess. I, you know, I enjoy a nice, um, a nice titty fuck once in a while because sure. like your mouth is safe, your yeah. everything is safe. Yeah, nothing could really be <laughs> yeah, be safe. spread that way. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of a lazy thing to do. You're using like your arm muscles, which is right. easy. And like maybe the person with the penis is like happy about it because they're like, yeah, know, they came on your chest. So they're just kind of, that's it. Well, it's all about selling it. You know, it's all sure. about the sex. <laughs> It's anything in life. It's marketing. So you have to market it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is so sexy, right? <laughs> See, I was very good, like, for many years, at kind of being sexy without having penetrative sex. But right. In some ways. And then when it came down to, actually, this is interesting in terms of mental health. So I'd be fooling around with someone. I'd be feeling, like, really powerful mm-hmm. and sexy. And and then it would come down to, like, okay, now the thing's going to go in the thing. And I'd panic. Right. Like, full-on panic. Right. And were you, like, in terms of contracting STIs and stuff, like, condoms, obviously, you, you were using them or sometimes weren't? And is that, was that where the fear was coming from? Or how did, like, condoms play a role in this? Yeah, definitely always using condoms. Okay. Um, I was diagnosed with HPV when I was uh, 20 and still a virgin. Wow. So I got a, a call from my gynecologist being, like, you, and we, he left a message. He was, like, you have genital warts and HPV. And that was that. And I was still a virgin at the time. And I, it, it, it became a huge part of my sexual identity for a really long time. I started getting checked um, like every three months. I did, you'll, it, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about I like would soak tampons in apple cider vinegar. Oh. Um, so I was doing horrible stuff to my body. It was doing horrible stuff to my self-esteem. And I really believed at this time, now keep in mind I'm 20. Right. You don't have sexual, for context, I'm 33 now. Um, you, you don't have appropriate sexual education. Right. You don't understand, at that point in time, we didn't understand that HPV was transient and usually works its way out of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my mind, I'm 20, I'm a, a virgin, and I'm like, oh my God, I have genital warts. All I'd ever heard was like, that makes you disgusting and untouchable and unlovable, and you will never be with anybody. Mm. And how will you ever tell anybody this? And so that really became a deep part of my self-esteem. Um, I went in, I think it was five years after that to a gynecologist to get my genital... No, I went in like two years after that to get the genital warts frozen off because it was affecting my life so badly. Mm-hmm. And the gynecologist... And that was from the HPV. That was from the HPV. Gotcha. Um, the gynecologist was like, what genital warts? She's like, you don't have genital warts. And I was like, what? You thought you had them? I probably did. I probably did. Um, HPV is transient, which means that it it can, not in all cases, but it can work its way out of your body. So think of it as a virus like, and they're still learning things about HPV. So if you're listening to this, I am not a health professional. Let's be clear on that. (laughs) Let's be clear. Um, 
But think of it like the chicken pox, where mm-hmm. it can live in your body, but you're not ever showing any symptoms. You're not even um, passing it. Mm-hmm. So you're not even... Uh, so I got tested. I think after that, I got tested 10 times after that, to be sure. So mm-hmm. it, it was really making me kind of nuts. For sure. In terms of mental health. Right. Um, and by the 10th time I got tested, my gynecologist was like, weren't you just in here? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And, blah, and you can never be too safe. Right. And she was like, you know, you've crossed a threshold. And to be in, you know, this is taking a toll on your mental health. And, and, and basically I was like, well, do I need to tell partners? And she was like, tell your partners what? That you had HPV like eight years ago and you don't anymore. And you haven't right. tested positive for it in like six years. No, you probably don't need to tell them. <laughs> like, and I was like, well, that seems irresponsible. Like, right. and that's how far off the deep end I had gone in terms of, paranoia and fear and and I think that's in part of the the stigmas around STIs and, totally. and these sorts of things. And HPV is very common. 80% of the population has some sort of HPV. Right. So I was maybe freaking out unnecessarily. That totally is scary though when you're like young and you don't and you've been taught certain things around the value of certain people with or without STIs and not wanting to be untouchable or unlovable, like it makes sense that it manifests in this like obsessive, anxious way. Yeah. I, I, I think our sex education in general is a bit small, but sex education around STIs in particular is very shameful. Totally. Um, it's like, you will get this and you will be, you know, and, and I know a lot of people who have STIs and who are living healthily, happily, and protect their partners. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when they originally get the diagnosis, there's incredible amounts of shame. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's like p- similar stories, like people were virgins, or it's like your monogamous partner. Mm-hmm. And it could have been your monogamous partner was carrying this thing for years, and now it's just showing up. Right. You know, and you still feel like, did they cheat? Is there the, and, and what yeah. happens if we break up? And how do I explain to someone? And how will I not be perceived as promis- promiscuous? And right. So yeah, there's a lot in there's there. There's a lot of, sh- lot of shit. You want to talk about mental health? Oh, yeah, this is the time. <laughs> all the shit. There's all the shit around that. Uh, yeah, let's see what we have here. Um, <laughs> let's see. Yeah, so I guess the next question is, what can we do to push back on this stigma and shame at large? What can we do as people who have a platform? What can we do as people in our everyday lives? Like what, what can we do to kind of understand the fact that this is such a a widespread problem in our society and like fight back to try to prevent other people from feeling these things? Yeah, I think the best thing we could do as a society is, for the love of God, start having honest conversations about sex. We, as a society, pretend like sex doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. We don't want to educate people about it, and so what do you do? You educate yourself through porn, which is not real, or your friends who are also clueless, or the internet, a bunch of 13-year-olds on Reddit who don't know what they're talking about, right? Uh And because of that, we're we're very isolated in our beliefs, um, in, in what we learn, that's one of the best gifts my book has given me is when people reach out and they're like, hey, I read your chapter about HPV or hey, I read your chapter about, um, you know, this guy did this shitty thing to you and it made me feel less alone and less ashamed. And that's been the, the greatest gift my writing has ever given me, the ability to help people feel less alone. But I'm not doing anything special. I'm just 
telling my truth. Mm-hmm. And if more Being people... Being yourself. Yeah, if more people would just say the, say the truth, yeah. you know, everybody would feel a little less alone and we could all be a little more educated about this. Totally. And good sex education in schools would help. Yes. A, a huge help. <laughs> yeah. That would go back to not pretending like sex doesn't exist. Yeah. So what kinds of resources do you wish that you had going back before you were 20, besides maybe, besides good sex education in school? Are there like other things that you would have liked to look to? For example, like for me, I think that like movies and TV shows have a huge responsibility because people are fucking watching to have medically accurate, honest and shame free sex be shown and conversations. And I don't think at large that that's happening. So I think that's something for me that I really would have liked to have as like a kid and a young person. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I think we are seeing, I think people watch porn. A lot of people watch porn. When I was growing up, I was watching this terrible porn called Bang Bus. Oh boy. You ever heard of this? I haven't. It was, you can imagine what it was. It was awful. And it was like, the, the focus was like women getting used and they were basically just sex objects. And I think that kind of really developed my belief that like, well, if you go home with somebody and you have sex with them, like you're, you're being used and they're going to toss you out. And it's like, you have no power. Obviously all of that's not true. But we are seeing now, I do think, more porn that's female friendly, mm-hmm. uh, that's realistic, that's real couples having real sex. Uh, there Actually, there's a website called Make Love Not Porn. Yep. We had Cindy on our uh, last <laughs> Did you? season. Yeah. I'm a big fan of hers. Yeah, she's um, cool. So I, I, do, I do think more realistic porn is a great resource because I do think people are watching porn. So like, this goes back to instead of, instead of ignoring the problem, just acknowledge people are watching fucking porn right. and make porn a little better. Right. Um, other resources, I agree with you. I'd love to see uh, more realistic sexual encounters in TV. I think TV really fucks you up in terms of like this idea of the emotionally unavailable guy that you win over. Oh, yeah. And we're doing that with sex and we're doing that with like, <laughs> I've been doing that for for years. Like I had to recognize that was a pattern. Um, yeah, I think those are, I think those are better porn, better media in general. Mm-hmm. And back to your, I'm curious about your own story now. So kind mm-hmm. of at the end of this, in your TED talk, which we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. you talk about how, you know, it wasn't spectacular when, <laughs> when, when your five-year spell ended, right? Yeah. I want to talk about maybe like where you're at now. Like, are you in a relationship? Are you okay with dating casually? What's your kind of today at 33, where is Olive Persimmon? <laughs> um, so I don't want to give a spoiler alert, but okay. the book ends with a happy ending. Okay. Um, and I was in my first ever long-term monogamous relationship, wow. having all the sex. Oh, you did it. Yeah, reverse cowgirl. That was like a thing throughout the book where I was like, I will never be able to master reverse cowgirl. Oh, God. And finally, I like, quote, unquote, mastered it. Basically, sure. just felt comfortable enough with myself and my partner to do to it. To do it. Um, and then because life is imperfect, we ended our relationship. Right. And, um, you know, you got you to gotta spend some time the thing about, the interesting thing about learning and life versus media, versus books or TV, TV, you always have a happy ending and it's done. You learn the right. lesson and you are a perfect person. And sure. you're, and so if this was TV, you know, or, or even my third book, I have now evolved and I have no problems with sex and I'm just meeting people and I'm a sex goddess. Right. And 
that's not the truth. The, the truth is the pendulum has swung. Mm -hmm. I don't feel the same fear that I felt. I don't feel the same caution around STIs that's crippling me. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm still actively trying to find love and it's still sometimes challenging. Right. And sex is still sometimes challenging, you and know? And it's gonna be. It's it just gonna, is be, gonna be, yeah. Especially even in monogamous relationships, even if you know your partner super well, people have off days, people have, people bring other moods to the bedroom that don't necessarily have to do with the other person. There's drinking involved, there's drugs, <laughs> there's all yeah. sorts of things. I, I tried to have sex with someone recently, actually. How'd that go? Well, let me tell you. Um, so he was, like, lovely. I wasn't like, oh, I want to date you. And for me, I, I very much need to be intellectually in it. Sure. And I liked this guy. He was nice. He rubbed my back. I like um, that. Yeah. He was talented. He was smart. He was very kind. So, like, on paper, he was, like, a really great guy. We go to have sex, and it just didn't, it just didn't work. Sure. Like, the thing didn't go in the thing, and then it was, like, my body wasn't responding the way I would have liked, and his body wasn't responding the way he would have liked, and then our bodies start reacting to that, and mm -hmm. then you get in your head. So, it just, it didn't go well for either one of us, and I call my friend the next day, and I'm like, oh, my God, I tried to have sex with this guy, like... Is all this shit I learned like null and void? <sighs> and I'm, I'm gonna be back in the dry spell again. And she said something that was really, I needed to hear. She was just like, you know, you're getting older, and she, she being your vagina, is trying to tell you now that, you know, not everybody's right for you. And like, this guy wasn't right for you, and she wasn't having it. That's true. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, duh. Like, obviously, you know? Like, yeah. I wrote a whole book about this. <laughs> obviously. I remember. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just need your friends to like call you out. Before oh, yeah. You. But I, you know, it, sex is so much about connection. Totally. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, she is single, folks, so <laughs> if you're interested. Well, that story. No, I swear I'm very lovely. I'm a great date. Oh, you're, you're the funniest guest we've had so far. Oh, my God. This thanks so much. You know, no problem. So funny. Do you hear that, guys? <laughs> you, listen up. Listen up. <laughs> um, so the last kind of question that we have is, like I told you, I watched your TED Talk. I really loved it. I was very enthralled. Thank you. I didn't even watch it on 1.5 speed, which is sometimes what I do when I'm trying to get through a <laughs> TED Talk. I don't blame you. I don't blame and, you. And it's called How to Be a Great Lover. And yes. it's all about not, it's not what you think, right? Yes. And I want to know if you can kind of give us a brief kind of talk about this and what you want to leave other people with in order for them to get more comfortable with their mental health and sex issues. Yeah, I think the main the main thing that has been problematic for me in sex is that I really believed and still fight this sometimes that sex was about logistics. So you have to know the right moves. I was obsessive about learning reverse cowgirl. Like if you just learn how to master this thing and I do the right yoga exercises to get, you know. And I think we're taught that like, I remember growing up reading magazine articles. Like if you have a scrunchie on the side of your bed, here's like a trick. And so we're always thinking that, that being a great lover is about doing the right, it's, it becomes very performative, mm -hmm. right? And so we all go in with this idea of like, if I do the scrunchy trick and I lick this way, and that's gotten good response before, mm -hmm. I will be this amazing lover. And, and you're having this whole dialogue with yourself while you're doing the thing mm -hmm. and like performing your show, right? right? And, and what I had to learn, and it's still a process, is that... It, 
the times when I had great sex, it was because I was relaxed and I felt safe. It was because I was able to be vulnerable and trusted my partner. And that doesn't mean like deep long-term trust. That just means I trusted them with my sexual health and I, I trusted them to listen when I was communicating my needs and honest and authentic communication. And that's really the foundation. Like, if you have that and your body feels that, your body just kind of does the thing. Right. Right? We, we as humans have been doing this for thousands of years. Uh-huh. And, but when I thought it was about logistics, I was like, how do all these other motherfuckers know how to do this? And it's how just me. How do they me. lift their legs up and yeah. turn around and do the twirl? Yeah. And I was like, all these people who aren't that great are just amazing lovers, and I'm the only one who can't figure this thing out. Uh-huh. Um, and it's because I was trying to figure it out instead right. of just, uh, you know, trying to connect with people. Uh, so I think that that was kind of the premise of the talk was being a great lover is not about doing the, t- the, the scrunchie trick. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I distinctly remember that. Like, <laughs> is it in Cosmo It or was some fucking Cosmo article I read when I was like 16. Like if you had a scrunchie by your bed, mm-hmm. you would use it to like stimulate the penis. Oh, wow. With the scrunchie. Yeah. I wouldn't want jizz on my scrunchie, <laughs> to be clear. That's a fair point. <laughs> But, you know, when you're 16 and you're reading Cosmo, it's all about his pleasure. So it was like, that's true. How do you perform this scrunchie trick? And Mm -hmm. now the scrunchies have made a comeback, which I'm kind of annoyed about. Yeah, it's too late for them. (laughs) You know, what are they doing here again? I know, they're back, but they're back. So if you're listening, you can try the scrunchie technique, but they can't be the thing you become obsessed over. You gotta, it's more about connection. And that's my whole story. That's amazing. This has been such a, an authentic and open and Thank amazing you. interview. Um, is there anything else that you feel like we haven't hit on that you want to talk about? Well, I would be a, a shameless book writer and bookseller if I didn't tell you where you could find more stuff. Please. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, if you want to find more of my work, uh, it's olivepersimmon.com. You can add me on social media, Olive B. Persimmon. Uh, Olive Persimmon's Coitus Chronicles on Facebook or Olive Persimmon on the IG. Uh, fair warning, I do really dumb stories a lot of the time that involve Snapchat filters. You've been I'm warned. I'm excited to you've tune been, in. You've been warned. And that's, and that's it. Amazing. Oh, what a great interview. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. My yeah. pleasure. Are you a cancer survivor or do you know someone who is? Earlier severe menopause and painful vaginal sex can often be an undiscussed and unexpected side effect to cancer treatment. Luckily, Millie can help. Millie is the gentlest dilator on the market with user-controlled in-vagina expansion, enabling gradual increases in size with only one insertion. Getting better is hard. Don't shortchange your progress. More than 50% of sexually inactive Millie users return to sex within three months of using Millie, with 30% reduction in pain and anxiety. Use Millie to have more pleasurable sex and break your cycle of pain. Go to www.milliemedical.com to check it out. Our creator, producer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalel, aka DB. Our assistant producer is Kathy Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Alana Rance. Our sound engineer is Oliver Devone. Our fundraising co-coordinator is Jamie Cooper. And our other fundraising co-coordinator slash content assistant is Callie Cochran. Our music is by Ben Sound and Hook Sounds. 
Thank you so much to our featured voices, sponsors, and our listeners. Tune in next time.